0: Good morning, diners and travelers. You're listening to On the Menu with Dan and Peter Haig. And I guess we should start by acknowledging that it's very difficult to sound cheerful when so much is happening around us with the coronavirus and the stock market and the disasters uh, throughout Europe. Um, We've had word from uh, colleagues in in Italy about how, how much they're suffering, um but and we worry about the, the, not only the health but the financial health of the people in our industry and in other industries as well and, uh, there's and, and what and else can you say about this it's it's certainly unsettling, desperate times.
1: Well, we're working at home, but but I guess we all we always do that unless we're on the road.
0: yeah, but we are social distancing, um cutting down unfortunately on events things are being canceled right and left uh we just got news that um uh, that the awards scheduled for May 4th the annual James Beard Foundation Chef and Restaurant Awards have been postponed till summer we don't and know and what that and means and
1: we all, we already we already let anybody know through uh, the news page that the IACP uh, annual conference, which was supposed to be right here in our back door in Pittsburgh, has been postponed until I believe it's October. October. So uh,
0: I mean, everything will be advi- it will be um, revised because nobody knows at this point what's happening. Um, the uh, the word from one of our friends in Rome is that you can go to the pharmacies and the grocery stores, but there's nothing on the
1: shelves. Yeah, and and we, and we we just hope that by now uh, the people who really know what they're doing are are actually directing things. Uh, we watch carefully for the for the latest thing that that the, the short grey head gentleman is telling us. Right, because cause he's cause he's the one. I don't want to try and pronounce his name, but he's he's the one who seems to actually know what's going on. Right. Other, other people in positions of power do not seem to know what is going on and that really concerns us a lot uh, we we have not heard much from family around the world so we're, we suspect that they're probably not doing quite as badly as we are uh, but we hope and pray for them we hope and pray for you also and uh, you can be sure that we'll keep broadcasting so we'll have something interesting for you to do Every Sunday for an hour. We hope. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're sure to, sure to. No question about that.
0: Now let's let's preface the the program by saying that these interviews were, of course, all conducted um, prior, yeah, They're pre-recorded before we,
1: before we knew any about this. Uh, the first, the first one, curiously enough, has an echo. What's an Char- echo. Char- Charlotte Druckman is it, it, an echo. If you listened to the news yesterday. And you heard the Weinsteins going to jail for 23, tw- oh. for 23 years. <laughs> and uh, you, this, this, the story of why Charlotte decided to write this book together with her collaborator is an interesting one and a, and a, a commentary on the need and the value of, of taking action when, something, when you see something that's really wrong.
0: Charlotte's wonderful. Anyhow, uh, here's Charlotte Druckmann and Woman on Food. Charlotte Druckmann is a very prolific writer, um, idea person, uh, creative, and she came up with this idea, and it's produced a wonderful book, which even has unusual visual effects, which I love, and it's called Women on Food. Uh, Where did you come up with the concept? It's been on everybody's mind for so long. But how did you narrow it down to it approaching it this way?
2: Um. Well, a lot of what what sort of planted the seed for me was anger. I'm very motivated by anger. Yeah. Um well. <laughs> <laughs> I found this in general to be true, but um, for me, when the Me Too, the sort of groundswell behind Me Too hit the food world, and we had the stories about Mario Batali and oh, Ken Friedman yeah. and that come out, it was really the first time that I had stopped to think about, you know, I had always thought about the way chefs were treated, women chefs were treated. But I hadn't taken a moment to think about how I as a food writer and a woman had been affected and I guess how sexism in my own industry had had an effect on me and my career and the work I had been able to do and not been able to do and Mm. how that carried across to other women in my industry. And I think one of the reasons probably I didn't stop to think about it is that when you choose journalism and you choose writing in, in that capacity, you're always covering other people's stories. My job was to write about what was happening in the food world, the culture of food. Most of us would not think to write about what's happening in our own backyard because technically that's not our job. Our job is not to write about ourselves, right? Our, our job is to go out and find the stories. And so it really, it sounds maybe like a small or a dumb thing, but it was. I finally sat down and started saying, you know, how has this affected me and my industry? And I just started to feel... So, so angry because if you think about it, food writing as a genre is something that was built by women. And it wasn't even really our choice. It was the only thing we were allowed to write about, (laughs) pretty much. You can add fashion to it, but any of us who wanted to be journalists or write for magazines and newspapers, the one thing that we were told we could do was food because it was women's work. Men didn't want to write about it. Men didn't think they needed to know about it. And so we got shoved into that very sort of service journalism space. And if you look at what that's become and how much we made of it, it's incredible. Yeah. And I will also say, though, that most of that was done by white women because it really did not welcome women of color. So we can look at that legacy, but you, you also have to be honest about it and, and look at what wasn't included. But I just started to feel so angry that this thing that essentially was ours had been in the last two decades co-opted by men if you look at all the major food publications and you look at who's publishing them and you just look at sort of whose voice is the voice of food you see men you see white men and I I just felt really annoyed so it, it went past the you know bad men of food media which we have every single industry and subgenre of that industry has them. Don't ever think they don't. But for me, it went beyond there and it, it went beyond things like what stories had I not even bothered to try pitching because I just felt like they would never be assigned well, you, to me
0: you've anyway. Asked a lot of the writers, let's point out that you have um, questions, uh, you have interviews, you have essays by 115 writers, chefs, yeah, television so, stars, and, and but, eaters. I love that, and
2: eaters. Yeah, <laughs> So the book, the book started with, originally for me, wanting to do something to both honor and challenge the legacy of women's food writing and to have women writing today about food be the ones to do that so we could kind of carry it forward. And mostly to give us the space to write the things we would like to write and the way we would like to write them. Like what would happen if we were all just allowed to do that? Because my theory was that you would see better content, you know, you would see better content if it wasn't branded, if we didn't have these editors with these bigger, what they would call missions, but they're pretty myopic, you know, getting in the way of the work that women would really like to be doing. Um, So, that was where it started, and then it became clear that you know. Again, I, I think I went to graduate school. You tell me about an anthology, and I just think you're sending me to do homework. Like I just think it's all <laughs> going to be essays. It's also usually work that's already been published. So I think, well, why do I want a book that gathers stuff I already read and already yeah. know about, and it's all essays? Oh no. Um, I think people have a negative attitude about anthologies because they just think that they're academic. Yeah, this is and, all you know,
0: original. This is yeah, the, and yeah.
2: they're not, you know, anthologies are, are tend not to be, like, great sellers. <laughs> and I just thought, how can we, if we're going to challenge what food writing is and who women are and what we're allowed to do, we should also challenge the medium itself that we're going to use to do this. You know, it's, so you, you have to keep creating new models, I think, because we've seen that the old models are hemming us all in. So I really wanted to mess with what an anthology was in the first place because I just wanted people to get excited about the book and not be scared off by it, but also because I felt we should just continue that work of challenging existing stereotypes and models. And so that was where it started. And I also realized that if we don't want people reading a whole bunch of essays and that's what you think an anthology is, it shouldn't be just essays. and It doesn't need to be just about food writing, because I think that could be a little bit boring for a lot of people, except for food writers. (laughs) Um, So we could bring in other women who work in the realm of food. You can bring in chefs. You can bring in, you know, farmers. You can bring in entrepreneurs. You can bring in women, women who interact with food professionally in a lot of different ways. And so that was sort of how I was thinking. I didn't want to do another book about chefs because I'd already done one. Um, So I liked using the format of those questions that were thrown out to everyone because you could get a bunch of different women from different walks of life, you know, answering the same question together. Um, And I really love doing the interviews because those are women that I really, I really look up to. And, some of them are writers, but they're writers I would not dare ask to contribute an essay because of, you know, where they are in yeah. their in their careers and their lives. It's just, to me, it was like, how could I ask someone to write an essay for some scrappy experiment? <laughs> you know, So it, and then there were women who aren't writers who I wanted to honor. And so I the, the interviews really allowed me to do that and to have that those moments um, in the book where you were getting to know... Someone who I think of as a legend, um, and have again have the format be a little bit different. So that that
0: was how. You know, I it mean, some out. of these. I mean, reading through here, you, know, you do get kind of sidetracked if you know the people and you want to know what they're going to say. But you know, I haven't been in this field for so many years, and you have writers in here and 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 chefs and whatnot um, that I never even heard of. And there's probably a reason for that, right?
2: Yeah. Well, you know, I I do think it's, it's if you you know if you left food at a certain point, it's just everything is changing, and we have new talent coming in. Um, I it was very organic for me. A lot of this, you know, in terms of when I was deciding who I wanted to have write an essay or who I hoped would write an essay. I honestly just thought who do I like reading right now who are the who are the women I really love reading right now and that was how I did it so it's interesting because I think some of these women are less known maybe to the outside world but to me I had been reading their work so they didn't seem you know in any way like they were new or you know uh-huh. so. It's more I think it's more a perspective thing and of course I'm happy now for people who don't do a lot of food reading and aren't part of this world to read their their work if they hadn't before. I mean that's you know, that's part of this. That's part of what makes it so great. I also noticed with the chef, you know, in terms of just who I asked, so I had a massive questionnaire that I did. Well, all those questions that are are littered throughout the, the book. Uh The way that I got them answered was that I sent out a huge questionnaire um, that I keep thinking, my God, if someone had sent this to me, would I have filled it out? (laughs) Um, It was, there were two versions of it. There was the version that went out to writers and editors, and then there was the version that went out to chefs and entrepreneurs, just because there were a few differences, but a lot of overlap. And... um, you know, I, I, when I sent it out, I said, you don't have to answer on every question because there are a lot of questions. Just answer the ones that speak to you. Just answer however you do fit. Like, you know, don't flood it too much. Um, and I also sent it to way more women than I knew would fill it out just because I knew not everyone is going to want to do this for whatever reason. And what I realized was that if any anyone who knows me personally and even Probably, possibly, if you've read my work, you know that I have a thing, too, that I love baked goods and that I am a huge supporter of pastry chefs and the pastry world and baking. And I always think it's not getting enough attention, and I'm always trying to give it more attention and part of that selfish because I want to eat all of it, but... <laughs> I noticed if you look at the book, you you will see if you're looking at the shot, you will see that there are a whole lot of pastry stuff in there, and it wasn't deliberate. <laughs> but it's also it's also not yeah. surprising. So yeah, it was tell,
0: us, tell me about you had subjects too. Some of them were the one that I really liked a lot was the thank you one.
2: Yeah. That
0: section makes me cry every time I read it, even now. It, you um, know, it's that other side. I mean, you do mention about how uh, women have been pitted against each other. Uh,
1: yes.
0: And you talk about that, which I thought was an interesting section. The one with um, with uh, Gail Green and um, uh, what's her name? I mean, Mimi Sheridan. <laughs> Mimi Sheridan. I yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah, I've had a lot going on between with both of them, you know, and two totally different people, totally different Very people. different,
2: and very different writers.
0: Yes, um, and contributed in different ways, but then, you know, um, I think once you recognize that women are always being pitted against each other in the food world, and probably in many other worlds as well, then to get to that section where there's, grateful all these people that have been helped by other women i loved it yeah i
2: loved it too and i also again it was this idea of you know the the book it's a critical book it's a book that's meant to be critical of of so many different cultural entities you know um but i wanted there to be a moment in there that wasn't you know, that wasn't critical, that wasn't challenging, that was really just about, yeah, saying thank, thank you. And also that was a way to, again, very organically get at that idea of a legacy, you know, that there have been all these women that came before us so that we can be here now. And I thought that was a really nice way to get that in there um, and to get a huge range of women mentioned who might not otherwise have been mentioned.
0: Yeah, you
1: know, um, can, can I tell a little can I tell my little Mario Batali story?
0: I don't know what it is. <laughs> I know I'm worried. I'm you no, you. Yeah,
1: now no, no, you you remember we 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 were we were at a symposium of some kind at the French Culinary Institute and, and Mario was going on about the fact that uh, critics could destroy a restaurant if they weren't careful and uh, and they really shouldn't have the power to do that. And uh, after he was done, I, sp- I spoke up because I said, I said, I live with the di- a dining critic and I know she takes her world very seriously. But what it seems that you're telling me is that there are no good dining critics and there are, n- and there are no bad restaurants. <laughs> <laughs> how okay. did,
2: how, I'm assuming the response to that was not I, I a can't positive remember,
1: one. I can't remember what the response was. I think uh, I think Anne, Anne was was uh, caught up by somebody in the ladies' no, room who said who said who known. who said who was that guy?
0: Yeah, probably <laughs> Cicero defended us. Yeah. Well, yeah.
2: I think the irony of that is that what's been proven now. I mean, horribly proven is that it doesn't take a critic to take down a restaurant. It takes the person in charge to, to treat their employees that badly to, yeah. to take down a restaurant. you know I mean yeah there 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 are other ways to take down a restaurant, and I think most of them come from the inside. Were,
1: were there any points of view that you that you got back that you thought were particularly surprising? I was going to ask like like, too. like like Rachel oh, like Rachel you know what, Rachel I mean, raised into things more than dog food.
2: Uh, no, you know what I I think what what's been nice is I mean this is so corny but I think just to me younger women who are reading the book who are just were just getting started in the food world or in the food world but they're in the their earlier part of their career to have them tell me how much the book means to them. I think that that is such a powerful thing. I mean, it's also nice to hear it from my peers, but that becomes more of like a preaching to the choir thing, I think, when, when you hear it from younger people who are sort of just learning about all of this stuff. Um, I find that incredibly moving. I also love how everyone sort of, people have different favorite essays. It's not like there's one essay that everyone has sort of blammed onto, and so I also think that's really interesting when someone tells you that, "Oh my God, I just love this essay," and it's like, "Oh, why?" I want to know why because they're all, <laughs> they're you know they're all so different that I'm wondering why each essay resonates differently with each person, and also I have to say it's it's nice to hear men tell me that they've. Even bothered to look at the book, <laughs> oh, and then yeah. when when men, there have been a few who have said, "Wow, you know this this is a, a great book," and you know I obviously did not write it for men. I hoped men would read it because I think there's a lot that they can learn uh-huh. from it. But I I did the book for women, so it's just you know to, to hear that is also really nice.
0: Now, uh, tell us about this section on horoscopes, which. I... <laughs> Oh, my I, gosh. I okay, came across is, it, and I didn't anticipate it. I, I didn't expect it.
2: <laughs> this is awful to admit, because it's my favorite thing in the book, and I wrote it. And I that's just like you <laughs> did. This is the worst thing. But it's also the silliest part of the book. Like, it is the least <laughs> serious thing about the book. It's not, you know, there are things that, you, that people, I hope, should read. Like, you don't need to read the horoscope. There, there are that book that I truly believe people need to read like everybody needs to read nobody needs to read the horoscope it's just they delight me personally and way, funny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah I think it's really funny too but I crack myself up so i I never really know the horoscope thing started because I discovered that people are really, really into these food newsletters, and specifically, like, I think Sam Sifton's newsletter really just, like, triggered this movement of these newsletters written by editors-in-chief, I guess, you know, and they're very, they're very voicey. I mean, I think his is the most distinct, you know, but um, I was thinking about that, and I was thinking about how if you, if you look at them, and you, so you look at the newsletters and you sort of just start taking out a few of the, the sentences or even the phrases sometimes. They're, this is going to sound so weird, but there's something about them that reminded me of the languages and horoscopes just because there's such randomness in horoscope writing if you're really paying attention. You know, it's like these horoscopes, when you read them, especially the ones that aren't very serious, They can almost apply to any person of any sign. You know, like you could read any sign horoscope, and if someone didn't tell you which sign it was, you probably could imagine it applied (laughs) to you. And I was thinking as I was reading these newsletters, and I do think it started with Sam Siffman, that he would just have these turns of phrases that were so funny to me or just so memorable. And I thought, you know, I wonder what would happen if you just started to turn these, and the horoscopes, and then I thought about it. Like, I really thought about it, and I thought, well, here's an interesting thing. All of the people writing these newsletters are men, because men are now all in charge of all of these major food publications, right? So you have Hunter Lewis at Food & Wine. You have Adam Rappaport yeah. at right. Bon Appetit. You have Christopher Kimball at Most Peaks. They're all doing newsletters. It's not just Sam Sifton, and they, they're all pretty... Yeah, you know, they all have this this very distinct point of view and this very distinct voice, and I thought, okay, what if you started to think about this in a bigger way, and what if you also think about this idea that you know food was something that was such a women's space before? What would be the next thing that men could take? You know what I mean? Like if they took food, what what could they take next? And then I thought, well. <laughs> Astrology is trending right now. People are really into astrology, the next thing they could take. And that was when I was like, oh, my gosh, I am going to take this random thought I had, and I'm going to turn it into actual horoscopes, and it's going to be the most fun I've had in a long time. That was how that section came about. It was actually hard, like getting – because it's really like I'm pulling phrases from – each of these newsletters and putting them together like a collage. And you don't want to do it where you're using too much of anyone's newsletter in one particular
0: horoscope then, right? I mean, you don't, the you really don't want scary thing yes. about <laughs> this is people actually believe in these things. When, yes, and, uh, when they eliminated and, 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 the horoscope from our, um, our alternate weekly paper, um, yep, that, that they, they, they got out. more emails. Um, and complaints about the removal of the horoscope call that of that, that, that anything they ever had in the paper before. <laughs> and that guy's well, a man. He's a man. <laughs> he's a man. <laughs> well,
2: so that, that yeah, that to me, people, I just love, I love that people love horoscopes this much. I love that people love those newsletters that much. And I love that there could be <laughs> connection that you weren't expecting and I just yeah I just thought this can be something that is a fun surprise but also makes its own statement about who sort of who owns what and um yeah one thing
0: that we've had is I think that we've had we were talking before we came on to record about uh, do we really uh, have we seen any change? Because we've heard lots and lots of stories and lots of testimony and testimonials um, about uh, equalizing the, the women in the profession. Uh, and then we had a lot of guys fell over this Me Too stuff, you know. But, I mean, how much progress have we really made as women in the hospitality? Industry, and you've had some ideas on that. Yeah,
2: I don't think that we have made as much progress as we have noise.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and I think we also have to remember that that when you live in the bubble of your own industry, the noise you're hearing is often an echo chamber. Yes. So it's hard. It's hard to gauge outside of our space whether it's food media or the industry itself how much is actually moving you know and especially I for me I live in New York City and New York tends to be a place where people are much more outspoken and we're having these conversations earlier and you know it's actually harder to have a business here this is actually interesting it's harder now than ever to open a restaurant here and so if you're a restaurant that's trying to do something with a different model and you're really trying to sort of change the infrastructure of how a restaurant is run, which I think is a huge part of this, I think the way you're going to see change in the industry is if you start seeing more models of how these businesses can be and you have more models owned by people who are disenfranchised from the mainstream restaurant model, um, that's harder to pull off in New York. So it's like we're screaming louder in New York, but I actually think that if you leave New York you will find smaller cities where it's possible for people to actually try to build a different kind of restaurant. Um, which well, is really we, we would hope
0: about. so, but it's tough all across the board because of the yeah. shortage of um, of workers. I mean it's it's really yeah. on, on all levels and it's gonna be really hard in England, you know, because they just came yeah. out and, and they put the category of um, uh, hospitality worker in the lowest possible category. The lowest.
2: Yeah, uh, I mean, that's the thing, too. I mean, there's this also fundamental thing, forget forget gender for a second. There's just the fact that hospitality workers are not respected for the work they do. The work is not respected, and the people who do it are not respected, um, and that gets into how much people are paid, that gets into how much they are or aren't protected by laws. Um, on top of that, it's an industry that for so long has been fueled by immigrants and immigrant communities, and based on what's happening now in this country with the, really you know, the yeah. anti, yeah, immigrant, not, and not just the legislature, but the, the sentiment behind that. I mean, it's just, that gets worse and worse and worse, and so, I think that's something that has to be fixed almost before you can fix everything else because that's, like, the most fundamental issue of just humanity, right, is uh, respecting other people and the work that they do. Um, So that's obviously a huge problem. Um, But, yeah, I think in terms of gender and inclusivity in in general, you know, of just seeing people from other cultures and Backgrounds and countries, and you know, not just white men being able to open all these restaurants and getting attention for it, or stories about people in hospitality being written a certain way. The only way we can change that is if we can prove that there are other ways to do it, and and prove that people want to experience those other ways as diners, as readers. Um, I think that's how you do it.
0: Well, I think, and I think, yeah, I
2: think you prove. That there is no such thing as one dominant model, you know, because uh-huh. I think that's the problem too.
0: Well, I think we've made some progress in the uh, in the area of um, issues and 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 um, a dulling down of the celebrity chef culture is, is that's slipping away. And yeah, uh, people yeah, are less so.
2: interested in in celebrity chefs, which I'm happy about.
0: Right. Well, listen, I think this book is just a delight. I enjoyed it. Again, um, listeners, it's uh, Charlotte Druckmann, It's Women on Food. And uh, you'll have humor, you'll have insight, you'll have um, stories you never knew that you didn't know about, <laughs> about a lot of people in the news. So, and your horoscope. And you can read your horoscope. <laughs>
2: Um, I wanna thank you guys for having me. Oh, Charlotte, me on it's always a pleasure. First yeah, before and I loved it and just just such a joy. Thank you
0: so much. Well, we like you a lot.
2: <laughs> thank you, I like you guys too.
0: Okay. Again, women on food. Go get it, listeners, because it's a really good read. Thanks, Charlotte. Thank you.
1: And don't go away, because we'll be right back. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net.
0: welcome back. I mean, our next guest is probably very apropos because as we're getting advice about what to stock up on in case we're quarantined or locked down, one of the things that everyone recommends is beans, (laughs) be they canned, frozen, dried, whatever. And uh, we have Vince Hayward, uh, talking to us about his company a multi, a, a,
1: multi a multi-generational exactly. family something like 5 or 6 or 7 even it's 7 devoted
0: to beans it's called camellia beans and it's based out of one of our favorite cities which is new orleans well hayward is the the magic word here it's a family name and we're going to be talking to Vince Hayward Um, His family has been at this bean-growing business and sales for quite a long time. And the brand is Camellia because that's whose favorite flower was Camellia?
3: Camellia was my great-grandmother's favorite flower. It was also at the time a uh, symbol of quality and uh, success. Uh-uh. Um, so it was a sort of a, a, a double meaning and it was uh it felt appropriate to use that as the as the uh symbol of the brand a symbol of a of a quality product with um um you know representative of the of the uh the amount of effort and <laughs> care that goes into producing the beans.
0: I mean, I have a different association with Camellia altogether. Do do you know the French movie, Camille? (laughs) I
3: do not. No.
0: (laughs) It was this beautiful um, heroine uh, who had a, a painful death from what was it? What was the disease she had? <laughs> no, no, she was getting the movie. She's gasping and choking and dying. Every <laughs> I, I think it, sounds, like a, sounds like, a, sound
1: like a good movie.
3: That was a good movie. Yeah. Well, I tell you this along the same lines. In the late sixties, we had a great hurricane here in you the South. It. it was Hurricane Camille. Oh yeah, and uh, you did a lot of. You know, it really changed the world uh, at that time.
0: Yeah, you know we should mention. Huge, you said
3: powerful name.
0: You, you said uh, from here, and we ought to point out that that you're here is one of my most favorite cities in the world, New Orleans.
1: That's right,
0: New Orleans.
1: Otherwise, then, otherwise known as the Big the Big Easy, or Big easy. Or the Crescent big easy. City, or whatever. But, yeah. <laughs> but but I'm I'm proud to say that the founder of your family dynasty in food came from a different country.
3: Yes.
0: Do you want to tell um, us the family story?
3: Well, um, you know, one of my great-grandfathers was um, um, in the West Indies and uh, had originally come from um, Great Britain and, and made, made his way to the West Indies for a while. And it was there where he learned about beans, um, the cultures that consumed beans, uh, the health benefits of them and then uh he eventually made his way into the city of New Orleans into the United States. And um, when he arrived he brought that that knowledge and that care and concern for um, edible beans with him. And um, we've been in the bean business essentially ever since uh he arrived here in the uh in the late eighteen hundreds.
0: You know with such a long family history did you ever consider doing anything besides beans?
3: No.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm so, completely
3: unqualified for anything else. That's
1: a, that's a nice way. to but you're smart enough to know that you should let somebody else grow these goddamn beans. <laughs> so, yeah. So, yeah. So, well, so you're not you're not totally involved in beans but pretty close I guess.
3: We're not farmers. Uh, that's a whole other art form yeah um, you know we've the the farmers that we work with we work directly with and very closely with for decades and in some cases generations um, and really that's been the success of our company and our brand is a, a very intimate working relationship with um, the sourcing where they come from how how they're grown, who's growing them, et cetera, et cetera. Now, where we talk where,
0: about the Camellia <laughs> standard, what is that?
3: Well, uh, it's a good question. We're you know we're known um, in the industry as a sort of a group of of um, of buyers and purchasers of of beans as being very selective about what we're willing to accept. Into our facilities, um, because we've spent a lot of time and a, and a lot of effort over the years understanding exact, the exact varieties and the qualities that we want um, in our packaging, so that our consumers will get a an experience consistent with what they've grown up with for many, many years. Now,
1: so, where where yeah, they actually yeah, grown? Yeah. Vince, are they... uh, well,
3: depending on the variety, they're grown all over the United States. Oh, okay,
1: all right. So it's not so yeah. it's not just Louisiana.
3: No, in fact, we don't grow beans in Louisiana. Yeah, I didn't say um, that, that. as a rule. There, Louisiana is great for things like sugarcane, and uh, uh, we do a lot of rice farming, um, and uh, even maybe sweet potatoes. But beans don't grow very well in Louisiana. We have, our climate is a little bit too.
0: Humid,
1: right, right, um, right. I, w- it. I was, I was, yeah. uh, I was, assuming that. That's why I asked the question because it, it puzzled me just a little bit.
0: But you do rice, and of course, you're right in the heart of the beans and rice territory. huh? Yep, yep,
3: yep, <laughs> yep. Yeah, yeah, we, we eat a lot of beans. We eat more. Uh, you know, we're we're known for the dish of red beans and rice, and uh, we eat more red beans in in Louisiana than any other any other place in the country. So. We go through a lot of beans. We just don't grow any of them here.
0: Yeah. Beans are having a sort of a heyday all of a sudden because everybody realizes sure. how nutritious they are.
3: Yeah. Well, um, you know, we were, <laughs> we were plant-based protein long before it was a sexy term.
1: Uh-huh. So,
3: yeah. <laughs> they, um, as people are becoming uh, more conscious of the... Of the uh the food they consume, um more conscious of where it comes from and and sort of health health benefits and effects of beans are once again sort of um having a bit of a renaissance in terms of um becoming an important part of people's diets for really good reasons. You know. Yeah, I
0: mean they're making all kinds of other things out of beans too now.
3: Sure. Well it's um you know, it's a great replacement for highly refined foods, or if you if you don't want to consume um, um, animal products or or wheat based products, they make great alternatives for a lot of those uh, for people who you know are interested in in, in trying to keep, um, keep have less of a refined processed uh, food in their diet.
0: Now, I mean you grow pretty st- straightforward beans not any exotica right
3: right so uh, we grow we grow 20 different varieties of beans that we sell all through the United States um, but all, all of those varieties would be ones that that are you know generally considered mainstream um, we we're, we're not a sort of specialty farmer with with varieties that are, are all that unique, um, but that's not that's not what we bring to the market. What we bring to the market is a very um, um, high quality, very sort of uh, selected, um, you know, lots of of, of uh, the varieties that we do sell. So we, you know, our number one seller is our famous New Orleans red bean, light red kidney bean. And um, we most of our time is spent sort of sourcing and selecting and and making sure that we we get the best that's available.
0: No, um, I'm trying uh, now leafing through this booklet. You have a a, a nice little recipe book called "Feed Your Soul." Yeah, yeah.
3: yeah. yeah.
0: And it <laughs> says there's one of these beans is your signature bean that your uh, Starts. Isn't it a white bean?
3: Sure. We do several varieties of white beans. We do navy pea beans, great northern beans, lima beans. Um, uh, But typically when people say in in Louisiana, if if you're cooking white beans, you're cooking either uh, navy pea beans or great northern beans. That's a very, very popular dish here.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm worried. I didn't have my black-eyed peas for New Year's this year. I had pork and sauerkraut, though. Yeah, never too late. You had mashed potatoes.
1: I had mashed potatoes
0: and and pork <laughs> and sauerkraut.
1: Yeah, I was I was gonna I was gonna make up uh, some beans t- today in honor of the fact that we were interviewing Vince. but i I forgot well you're talking
0: about long preparation but i promise i'll do them tomorrow you you don't i mean i don't know you probably have all kinds of uh, tips on bean cooking don't you vince sure
3: sure Um, you know one of my favorite tools is the crock pot you know personally when i cook beans I, i put them in the crock pot in the morning with my seasoning and and um uh, chopped vegetables and turn it on and when I come home from work. There they are, waiting for me, ready to eat. Yeah. So there
1: doesn't you go. Feel now. like
3: a long preparation. In, now in here's that way.
1: here's a big here's a big question, and we discussed this with Steve at Rancho Gordo to go to a yeah. real expert, but let's get another expert's view on it. When so when when you soak them overnight, do mm-hmm. you throw the water away or do you use it to cook the beans?
3: Well um i I don't know why you would reuse the water
1: okay all right
3: um the first of all just from a from a um, very basic perspective um beans can be dusty so you're you're washing the dust off of the off of the beans while you're soaking them or sort of anything that they may have come in contact with so i wouldn't necessarily want to use the water
1: Oh, okay. Um, okay. So
3: just from that perspective, and then uh, interesting.
1: But wouldn't yeah, you? Don't, don't you rinse them first anyway? I mean, I I rinse mine first, and then and then yeah. I then I and then I, I put them back in fresh water. Yeah. A yeah. So overnight the, in water that's clean. The idea.
3: Of, yeah. The idea of soaking them is to partially rehydrate them. Right. 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 Yeah. So they don't really become fully rehydrated until they've actually been in boiling water.
1: Okay. All right.
3: So um, you know, soaking them can can start that process. Although I will tell you, in my experience, it doesn't dramatically alter the cooking time um, necessary to cook a pot of beans.
0: I mean, I, I never. Everybody's so involved with these uh, Insta pots and all this. Mm-hmm. And why? <laughs> what? How complicated is cooking a pot of beans? Not very. No, the
3: Instant Pot gives you the, the benefit of pressure cooking. You know, I I use a pressure cooker mm-hmm. um, to cook beans, and I just enjoy how it speeds up, the, you know, the time um, necessary. You can definitely cook a pot of beans in half hour or an hour at the most. Um, and, the you know, the, the Instant Pot just sort of automates that process and, and I think maybe takes a little bit of the fear away from using a pressure cooker. And it's, you
0: know, it's it's easy. Well you know, I mean you say it's easy. I have one of these programmable multi cookers and yeah. I took it out and I read the instructions and sold <laughs> and it I put, it you put it back She I put it back in the box and it's in a cupboard.
3: Yeah. <laughs> I think we all have like a closet full of appliances we've purchased and not yeah.
1: <laughs>
3: <laughs> My air fryer is in that closet. Oh, I haven't fryer. done that I've never yet.
0: Used that thing. Yeah, I've resisted the air fryer. Somebody keeps wanting to send me a, a toaster oven that also is an air fryer.
1: Right, I can't uh, get my head around it at all. <laughs> the, the, the funny The funniest thing was the lady who sent it. No, no the one. The one who she, she sent us a glass kettle, and we thought, well, we we'll, won't we'll, we'll, we'll use that immediately because we have a glass kettle in the kitchen already. So we put wow. it in the closet where everything goes. Guess what? Sure. <laughs> there was one like it there already. <laughs> 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 The, the, the kettle I'd been breeding
0: <laughs> yeah, well, I, 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 think, I,
3: I think I have my George Foreman grill in yeah. the back
1: of
0: my closet too Yeah. <laughs> listen I have one to top that one it's also yeah. in the cupboard it's, it's a disposable grill it's a one time use grill
3: <laughs> oh there you go with the charcoal in it already
0: <laughs> I guess the yeah. idea is you it's light enough. if you take it off to a picnic and then you incinerate it. Yep. <laughs> I once did a funny, you know, you own awful own gift guide. You all <laughs> yeah, you want know,
1: I'll send it to you. Yeah,
0: you want to send it to you. I once did a roundup of all these crazy things that they had come yeah. out with, with the, um, for the kitchen. And yeah. <laughs> I mean, you have no idea how, how bizarre these things are. <laughs> Sure. There's a whole thing that's only designed to crack eggs, and hits it, oh wow! It just, an just egg it, cracker. It's it, yes, actually it it was, just. It was oh, it, my, my it was, in, it was invented by. In Used it a soap dish. <laughs> it, it
1: was actually. I would like an egg cracker. I'm it was, it, it, was
0: it this is a piece of plastic <laughs> with a ridge on it, and you just hit it. That's all right. it, it was invented. <laughs> it, was invented
1: by, it was invented by a marine, if you remember. Yeah, I know. Yeah.
0: Oh, boy. <laughs> well, okay, Vince, um, and we we got all the serious stuff about the camellia beans. Yeah. Do you have any funny bean stories you'd like to share before we part ways? Well, a funny
3: bean story, <laughs> you kind of put me on the line, it, you know, on, the, on the spot here, you know, beans inherently aren't that funny. you know. <laughs> I you know, of course, a lot of people like to joke about, uh, you know, they eat beans, it gives them gas.
0: Oh, yeah, flatulence. And, uh, you know,
3: and... Uh, You know, most most men enjoy that actually, and I think that's been a big part of our success. I joke that you know, uh, (laughs) one of the reasons that we sell so many beans is because there's a lot of men that you know live in the South that just love love that aspect of it. They do. (laughs) (laughs) That's pretty funny. I didn't know that. I'm I'm convinced that's part of it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well,
1: back back in the day, as they say, back in the Victorian era and earlier, yeah. You probably, if you if you read books like Pride and Prejudice and books like that, sure. it was always sure. it was the custom that after dinner had been completed, the the ladies would remove themselves because yes. because of the vapors.
4: <laughs>
3: <What>? <laughs> there you go.
1: <laughs> so so the gentlemen re- remained in the in the dining room with their. With their vapors and their yeah. their their oh, after dinner drinks and their cigars, and their sure. and, and their wives were <laughs> vanished because they they weren't they weren't up for the beans. Oh, Doing what men do. I guess you never expected
3: yeah. this kind of Well, no, I'm I'm having a, I'm having a great time. Well, a good we dinner. enjoy fun. you too. Yeah.
0: We'll have to come visit yeah. you in New Orleans. Oh, that would New be a New lot Orleans. of fun. So, yeah,
3: that'd be great. Yeah.
0: Do you do tours your
3: factory. <laughs> yeah, we could yeah, be, definitely sure make that would. Yeah.
1: Now, the Now, here's the, here's the biggest question. Is Drew sure. Brees your spokesperson?
3: <laughs> <laughs> so, Drew Brees was um, talking about how he enjoyed red beans and rice and how he cooked them on Mondays. So we put together this wonderful gift package and sent it to him.
1: <laughs>
3: and I thought for sure he was going to, Take a picture of it and open it on Instagram or something, but we never heard a word.
1: <laughs> oh no, kidding!
3: <laughs> but he's still he's still our hero here in New Orleans.
1: He's a pop- sure. he's a he's a pop- he's a popular guy, I guess, right?
3: Yeah. Oh yeah, we love him. Well, the, well, the we year you guys
1: him. won the Super Bowl, I I was I was so thrilled. I couldn't have been more thrilled if the Steelers hadn't won it. Yeah. So, so we figured we, if the Steelers, yeah. the Steelers didn't win, it was all right for the. For the ants, now they, yeah. no, they called them the ants, the if you remember. Yeah. And everybody used to wear, used to wear, brown bags over their head.
3: Yeah, that was a long time yeah. ago. We don't, we don't talk about that anymore. Good. Now. Well, well, it's it's yeah. it's yeah. been it's been a,
1: it's been a great new era for New Orleans. It's been an era for beans from the Camellia yeah. Company for all this time. Yeah. So these it's,
0: are Vince Hayward. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate you saying that. And it's been
1: it's yeah. been a real pleasure to talk to you. And we we wish the rest of your family. Continued success yes. and happy times.
0: Thanks.
3: You too. James. Thank you. I enjoyed the conversation.
0: <laughs> bye bye.
3: Talk to you later.
1: Bye. Podcasting services for On the Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station. www.aspstation.net
0: Well, and our next, next, <laughs> next, next, our next and last uh, session here or segment is uh, Stephanie Knoll, who's, it's spelled no well, but is pronounced Knoll. And she's the special um, collections librarian at the University of Texas, San Antonio. And I got so excited to find out that not only does this place have the most spectacular uh, old, old, old um, Mexican cooking collection, but they are gradually putting it all online. So after the interview, I frantically called um, people I know who are Mexican-Americans who like to cook Mexican so they could actually get recipes that their great-grandmothers, actually, or even before that, cooked. Anyhow, here's Stephanie Knoll's segment talking about the Uh, cookbook collection at the University of Texas, San Antonio. I got so excited reading this press release from the University of Texas, San Antonio, Mm -hmm. and so I contacted them and their special um, collections librarian, Stephanie Knoll, uh, to come and talk to us about it. It's a... It, it, I, I don't know what the adjective should be about the Mexican cookbook collection. It's, I mean, It has some of the oldest manuscripts, right? hmm Why don't you describe what this collection is, Stephanie?
4: Sure thing. Uh, happy to be here. And our collection is comprised of over 2,000 Mexican cookbooks. And these run the gamut. Um, our oldest cookbook is from 1789, and it's a a manuscript, so it's actually a handwritten recipe book.
1: Um,
4: We also have uh, published cookbooks, Um, so we have the earliest cookbooks that were published in Mexico in 1831. Wow. Um, We also have Mexican cookbooks that were published outside of Mexico, so... Uh, we have one of the only known copies of an 1828 cookbook that's in Spanish, but it was published in New York on Mexican cuisine. Wow, this so. is fascinating. I mean, you must be just
0: odd yeah. the joys. But the, the, well, no, the isn't isn't, isn't,
1: the, isn't it true? Isn't it true that the, the main reason that the Mexicans invaded the Alamo was to get their cookbooks back? <laughs>
0: <laughs>
4: <laughs> could be, could be.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but no, I mean this in itself is fabulous because it points out. As I was reading, um, most people have this idea that there was um, an indigenous cuisine and it was augmented by um, the Spanish, and that was it. And it turns out that it's much more complicated than that. And, and 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 you get that from the cookbooks. But what excited me was. That pretty soon it's not just somebody wandering into San Antonio that will have access to it, Mm -hmm. but you're digitizing them and making them accessible to everybody online. Tell us about that.
4: Yes, so in uh, 2014 we began our digitization of our cookbooks. um, And since I began my position in last year, uh, in August of last year, Um, we have kind of revamped that process. So since I've been here, um, we've digitized 10 more cookbooks, but that brings us to a total of 50. So there are 49 manuscript cookbooks that are currently available. Um, All you have to do is go to the UTSA Special Collections page, find Mexican cookbooks, and that should take you to the the link for the digitized content. Um so there's forty nine manuscript cookbooks and then also that eighteen twenty eight cookbook I was just talking about that wow. was published in New York. Um since it's one of the only known copies, we figured we would go ahead and get that digitized too.
0: Jeez. And and, and how exciting is this for you to do do you read them?
4: You, oh I yeah. Yeah, I've gotten to. I've found out about so many interesting recipes and in so many of our manuscripts. Um, I think just like at least my own personal uh, recipe collection feature a lot of desserts. So if you need good dessert ideas, definitely check out some of these cookbooks.
0: Wow, and and how many total do you aim to to do to put online?
4: Um, we aim to get all 100 of our manuscript cookbooks online, and, um, you know, we're getting at least one a week done at this point, so I think we can probably get those up by this time next year. Um, and then once we get all of the manuscript cookbooks digitized, we're going to start going through some of our older published cookbooks, um... So that those are also available. You have this representation of early cookbooks in Mexico um, that are really hard to find. And they'll be, hopefully soon, available to everyone.
1: Now, I'm a little confused when you say you're drawing a distinction between a manuscript and what else? A book? A published cookbook. Oh, so, okay, okay. So,
4: manuscript is unpublished. Got it. And, got it. Thank you. and then published. Those actually were put out by um, a publisher. Now, now, I read
0: somewhere, I think, that you also have Diana Kennedy's papers.
4: Yes. She donated her personal papers to us last year. Uh, and, wow. And um, that 1828 book that I was talking about, yes. that was one of her books. Um, she also has, I mean, she has quite the library, as you can imagine. Oh, she did Um, (laughs) all the original
0: research. I mean, she comes back to the original uh, um, sources.
4: Yeah, so we we acquired about ten books from her last year um, during the same time that she was donating her papers. And we are in the process of preserving those And digitizing them as well. So hopefully those will be up sometime this year, uh, too.
0: She's absolutely amazing. We've interviewed her.
4: Oh, Um, nice.
0: I mean, when you think of how, when she went first to Mexico, a Mm -hmm. a single woman, you know, and did all this. It was just amazing.
4: Yeah, she's definitely got some gumption. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Did
0: you interact with her at all?
4: Um, because I just got here in August, we completely uh, missed each other. Um, uh, but I have connected um, with her to bring her on campus for for some of our classes. Um, so yeah, she's she is just a fountain of knowledge
0: and dynamite. Oh Temple yeah, dynamite. for sure. So no, how much interest are you getting in this? I mean, I got so excited, but
4: <laughs> <laughs> um, we've gotten a, a just. I'm I'm shocked by the amount of interest. I'm so pleased because um, we have we've I've given several interviews now. So I did one interview with Atlas Obscura. Oh,
0: did that, you really? I love that.
4: Yeah, Atlas and then Obscura. Oh, they're, they're so yeah. They have their food page, Gastro Obscura. Yes. And so that was published on there, and then the Smithsonian wrote an article about us. Um, so that went up on the Smithsonian's magazine page, uh-huh. and I mean, it's just been incredible. I've I've never had this much interest in any of the collections <laughs> I've worked with. So it's real. I feel very honored to be representing this collection because I. I, it's it's like everyone else is getting to see what I see every day, you know?
0: Oh, jeez.
4: So I'm just so pleased.
0: And what what has come out of this? I mentioned the fact that it's mu- the history of Mexican mm-hmm. cooking is much more complicated. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, what else has come out as a result of all this original material?
4: Um, I think for a lot of my researchers, it's a connection to their heritage. Um, So we have a lot of chefs come in, and for instance, um, we had a chef from Yucatan come in this week. Really? And, you know, he specializes in Yucatecan and Mayan cuisine,
0: Wow! and
4: so I just let him go to town on um, all of our Yucatecan and Mayan materials, and he was just so excited because you really, when you have all of the cookbooks, you know, kind of... Laid out, and you can really go through the recipes, you can see the evolution of these dishes over time, and it's just you know there's nothing like it. it you know you instantly feel connected with your 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 past.
0: Wow, that has to be exciting yeah
4: i've and I've used these materials for classes, and I've had students in tears um going through these cookbooks because it's it reminds them of you know how they're you know their grandmother made that particular dish, and it's just yeah, it's I feel very blessed to be in this position because like I get to have these meaningful moments every day,
1: well, now, now you get interest from the United States from people of, of Mexican background, but also from the country of Mexico,
4: well, oh sure, she mm-hmm. just said. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. So we have we have researchers coming from from both sides of the border. Um, and you know, it's not just chefs, we also have food writers who come in, we have people who are researching food ways, you know, we have academics coming in. Um, and then our students also, and it's so important for them because you know they they go here every day and they don't even realize what is you know just being stored right above them.
0: Uh-huh.
4: So yeah, it's yeah, we 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 get a lot of interest across the board. We uh, one of my classes that I worked with last semester was um, a writing class, and the entire class was about writing cookbooks. So really? perfect examples. <laughs> You know, oh, that's so,
0: great.
4: Yeah, so the entire class wrote a cookbook together. Oh,
0: wow. So you you cook as well?
4: Um, I'm more of a baker, so I am definitely more interested in the baking side of things.
0: Maybe uh, you can discover then what my alligator cookies are. <laughs> 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 I, I found this this Mexican bakery in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. And, and I have no idea what these cookies are really called, but they look like alligators. oh so my I called them alligator cookies <laughs> <laughs> and, and and my a colleague of my husband's used to air freight them to me oh, <laughs> that's lovely, <laughs> especially when I was pregnant. I had this like,
4: Oh, yeah, you get you those cravings. Yes. <laughs> she, did.
1: she did indeed.
4: <laughs> well, if I see any cookies that look like alligators, I will let, let know. you
1: know. <laughs> There's probably a recipe in there somewhere. Oh, yeah.
4: sure,
0: yeah. <laughs> well, I can hardly wait to, to spread the word on this, um, Stephanie. And I I'm, I'm, I have a, a, a gym buddy who's Mexican, mm-hmm. a Mexican-American, and she has eight sisters. And they go back and forth and everything. But, um, I've, I've given her, I get giveaway cookbooks. I've given her some of those. But I'm going to steer her to the online Mexican cookbooks and she's going to have a ball.
4: Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah. I, I hope she and any, anyone else who goes there loves it because this is definitely a labor of love for us. Oh,
0: well, I'm, I'm glad to get to talk to you. So, and, and uh, enjoy your work.
4: Well, thank you so much for for having me. Yeah, I like
0: librarians, as you yourself.
4: <laughs> <laughs>
0: I can hardly wait to have our son listen to this.
4: Oh, wonderful! Yeah. Well, yeah, and let me know if you need anything else.
0: Okay, Stephanie. You know. and it's it, it's um, no it's Noel, but not Noël. That's correct. Yeah, Noel. our
4: family has to be different. Okay.
0: <laughs> thank you, Stephanie.
4: Thank you both so much. <laughs>
0: <Bye-bye>. <laughs> bye bye.
4: Bye.
1: Okay, this, this this is the end. This is the end until next week, same time, same place. And we will and, be here because we're not, here we are,
0: the usual wanderers in, in, and travelers. And me- we're going nowhere. In the
1: meantime, we wish wish you and yours safe safety and good health, we hope. And uh, we'll be thinking of you, and we'll be back same time, same place next week. So not to worry, you'll have something to do next Sunday.
0: Bye-bye.